Our first lesson comes from Revelation chapter 20, beginning at the 11th verse. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. And from his presence, earth and sky fled away, and there was no room found for them. And I saw the dead, both great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. Then another book, the book of life, was opened, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up its dead, and death in Hades gave up their dead, and the dead were judged according to what they had done. And death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And anyone whose name was not written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. And then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. What do we do with this concept of final judgment? What do we do with final judgment? I mean, you've got to say, really? It's Memorial Day. We're going to look at Revelation chapter 20? See, Memorial Day, as we know, is a time of remembering those who've died in the service to our country for our freedom. As a uh, new American, uh, I've been learning all the different traditions. Last year uh, was our first Memorial Day weekend, and uh, some of you heard me talk before about how important it was for us to get flag service. We got flag service in the front of our house, and so as these new Canadians, these Canadians becoming new Americans, uh, desiring to see uh, the stars and stripes in front of our home on all the different flag days. But last Memorial Day, which was our first Memorial Day here, uh, went outside that morning and, and realized they'd forgotten our house. They'd got all the other houses, but our house was missing a flag. It was like they knew our immigration status or something. And, and so later that day, it was, it was Saturday, and we were as a family going somewhere in the car, and we saw the Boy Scouts out putting out the flags. And I said, I got them. And we drove up and sped up and parked. And I stopped and said, hey, you forgot our house. And I gave them the address and the rest. And, you know, within a few minutes, clearly they were going to go put. And they, you know, enthusiastically, I'm like, you've got to get the flag there. Got back in the car. And my kids looked at me and said, daddy, you really want to be American, don't you? But I mean, when we look at Memorial Day, it is an important weekend. We, we have this moment to remember those who have sacrificed so much. And yet, as we look at a weekend like this, as we remember those who've paid that ultimate sacrifice, we think of the glorious dead, as they're often referred. We cannot help but ourselves pay attention to our own mortality. I mean, if we're really focusing on Memorial Day the way it's supposed to be focusing on, not just as a launch into summer, but really as a weekend to commemorate those who have gone before us in service to their country, we cannot but help pay attention to our own sense of mortality, to think about final things, to think about final judgment. And you may say, man, this is the wrong topic to talk about on Memorial Day. There might be visitors here, but I'll tell you, as a former atheist, 
When I first became a Christian and I was working through all that it meant now that I was following Jesus, it was precisely looking at issues like final judgment that made the biggest impact on me and most clearly communicated to me the gospel. It was as I looked and studied and learned about things eternal, those final moments, final judgment, there I saw the gospel so clearly on display. I would argue that if you're struggling with faith, if you've got major faith questions, avoiding questions like final judgment will not help you. We confront them head on because here we find the gospel. You see, as we look even just at this text from Revelation 20, just these few short verses describing us standing before the throne of God, we will find an incredible picture. We'll find God's goodness, first of all. God's goodness. And you say, in final judgment? Yes, in final judgment, we find God's goodness. We find what is yearning, our hearts are yearning for, justice. But not only do we see God's goodness in this text, this final judgment text, but we also find just how grave our sin is. We, we really experience the gravity of our sin. We will encounter just how broken and what eternal outcomes our sin can have. But see, it's not just that we see the goodness of God and the gravity of our sin in this text. We ultimately see amazing grace. Yes, in this text, we see incredible, amazing grace. And so let's look at this text. Let's look at what it means to stand before the throne of God. I mean, first of all, as I said, our text shows us that as we stand before the throne of God, we see God's goodness. Verse 12 and verse 13, there's this phrase that's repeated. It says they are judged according to what they had done. In other words, what's in those books being read are the accounts of our human lives, our deeds, that which we've done. It's all been recorded. It's all been on display. It's incredible how much we as human beings think that we can hide our actions from God. But God has been paying attention. It's all written down. It's all there. And, and this is where often Christianity gets criticized. I remember as an atheist, I would say things like this regularly. One of my opening salvos when I was talking to a person of faith is I would say, I have no interest in your God and his judgment. I have no interest in your God and his judgment. But as I actually took that question more seriously over the years, I realized that I was totally lying when I said that. I was not telling the truth. Believer, unbeliever, we all long for a God in heaven who will judge. I'll say that again. Believer or unbeliever, we all long to have a God in heaven who will judge sin and wickedness. And, and you know this to be true. I mean, what happened to you the last time someone cut you off in traffic? What was your reaction? What happened the last time someone cut in front of you in line? When I grew up, when I was a little kid, I grew up on an island Vancouver Island on Canada's west coast, British Columbia. To get off the island, you needed to take a ferry. And to take the ferry, these big ferries you could drive onto, you had to drive up the highway, 
And then as you were getting close to the ferry terminal, there'd be these long lines you'd have to get yourself collated into because you had to pay to get on the ferry. And everyone was working really hard because when I was a kid, those ferry sailings were two hours apart. You either got on a six o'clock sailing or you had to wait till the eight o'clock sailing or the 10 o'clock sailing. And if you missed the ferry by like three or four cars, you'd have to wait there in your car for two hours. And so we'd all be in line waiting to see, am I going to get on? And then you know what would happen? 30, 40 cars in line. One person would decide to drive up the shoulder. They'd drive all the way past 20, 30, 40 cars, and then they'd put their blinker on. And some idiot would let them in. And I'll tell you what I would do. Like everyone else, we'd all watch that car. I'd have my eyes on that red Volvo for the next several minutes watching. We'd all get collated into our lines depending on how quickly we paid and all of a sudden we'd be waiting. The ferry would be there. Would we get on? Would we not get on? One of two outcomes took place. Either that red Volvo missed the ferry by two cars and we would cry out, justice has been served. (laughs) Or something else would happen. That red Volvo would get on the ferry and then we'd miss the ferry by two cars. And the howl of injustice that would come out of me, oh Lord, would you bring your wrath down on that red Volvo right now? We know it's true. The cry for justice in our hearts is deep rooted. And I'm just talking about getting on a ferry ride. Think about the things in our lives, in your life, where you've really been wounded by another, when you've really been hurt, when evil has been brought on you or on someone you love. Think about those moments in your life and then ask yourself the question, what would it be like hypothetically to end up before the throne of God and to hear God say, looking at all that evil being done to you and to your loved ones and to this world and God says, ah, it's okay. Don't worry about it. It didn't really matter in the end we would cry out for justice. That God would not be a good God. As Miroslav Volf, a Croatian theologian, probably one of the greatest theologians of the last 20 years, grew up in the ethnic cleansing within Yugoslavia. As he writes, speaking of this question of justice and the goodness of God, he said, if God were not angry at injustice and deception and did not make a final end of violence, that God would not be worthy of our worship. The goodness of God is what's at stake here. As Romans 2, 5 tells us, that there is a God who one day will bring his righteous judgment, his holy justice, his his correct judgment on the earth. For those of you who are Narnia fans, it's like that moment when the children first hear about Aslan, the Christ figure in Narnia. And Mr. Beaver says, Aslan is a lion. The lion, the, the great lion. Ooh, said Susan. I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. 
He's the king, I tell you. We cry out for a God who is good. And we see God's goodness no greater way than as we see him standing in judgment over evil. Justice will roll down. But you see, it's not just that we, at the final judgment, see the goodness of God, justice. But in the final judgment, as we stand before the throne, we see sin's gravity, the graveness of our sin. See, the problem is, we want justice in the case of others being judged, but we want to excuse ourselves. As John Stott once said, he said, we have a fatal tendency to exaggerate the faults of others and minimize the gravity of our own. But standing before the throne of God, it won't be like that. We will see our sin and we'll see just how grave it is, just how broken, just how wicked our sin is. See, the, the same person who desires God's justice to come, oh Lord, would you bring your justice to this world, then has justice applied to my life. And in the face of my brokenness and my sin and my evil, that justice is brought on my head as well. Verse 14 and 15, they're, they're scary words, I know. Verse 14 and 15, then death in Hades will be thrown into the lake of fire, it writes. Now, the second death, this is the lake of fire. And those whose names are not written in the Lamb's book of life are thrown into the lake of fire. It's, it's the most common image, fire, in the New Testament to describe eternal judgment, hell. Fire is used. And I used to think, as a Canadian, that, you know, having lived through minus 40 weather, I said, no, no, I think the Bible got it wrong. You know, I think if, if you're going to give an imagery for hell, hell is really, really cold. And then I moved to Texas. <laughs> See, the search team that brought me here have a lot to answer for. Because they brought me and Monica and our four girls here to interview at Christ Church in March. And we said, it's beautiful here, it's lovely. And then we moved here in July. And I realized the Bible got it right. Hell is best described with fire. You see, the the, the imagery here, though, whether we're using fire imagery, whether we use language of, of the outer darkness or Gehenna, it doesn't matter what image is used here. It's all meant to point to something horrible. And, and it's meant to be indicative of something else. It's, it's, it's not a literal fire necessarily as much as it's an indication of something as bad as that. Whatever it is that you can imagine this experience of damnation and hell to be, it's far worse than our imagining. That's the point. But here's the issue. We often misunderstand this thing of fire though, right? We think in terms of fire, you know, this, this last judgment, this punishment as, as something that's very much external to us. It's kind of like, I'm living my life now, doing my thing, right? And then, oh, one day, judgment seat, before the throne, into the fire. 
right? And, that, and that, that often is part of the criticism that people will give about Christianity. It's kind of like, man, these, these happy-go-lucky people living their lives on, whoop, into the lake of fire. But that's not what happens at all. You see, in fact, as we, if we're honest with what we see in this text, we see in verse 12 and verse 13, again, that language of judged according to their, what they've done, right? That judged according to their deeds. See, what, what's at stake here, it's not just that we're being judged because of our deeds, the deeds ultimately become the judgment in and of themselves. Here's what I mean. That fire language is the language of destruction, right? Fire burns things up and destroys them. Our sin, the evil that dwells in us even now, that's already a flame of fire. That's already a burning coal within us. That destructive power of sin and evil is already living right within us. That fire that will one day at the judgment seat of God become a complete fire, an eternal fire, has already been lit in each human heart. As we sin, as we live evil lives, we have that fire burning already now within us and it gets bigger and brighter and stronger and destroys it. We feel the effect of the destructive force of sin even now. You feel the fire and I feel the fire right now in our lives. And ultimately our judgment, our hell, is gonna be experiencing that sin, that evil, completely lived out eternally. Here's what C.S. Lewis once wrote in Mere Christianity. He said this, he said, Christianity asserts that we are going to go on forever. Now there are a great many things that wouldn't be worth bothering about if I was only gonna live 80 years or so, but I had better bother about if I'm gonna go living on forever. Perhaps my bad temper or my jealousy are getting worse but so gradually that the increase in my lifetime will not be very noticeable, but it might be absolutely hell in a million years. Hell begins with a grumbling mood, always complaining, always blaming others, but you are still distinct from it. You may even criticize it in yourself and wish you could stop it, but there may come a day when you can no longer. Then there will be no you left to criticize the mood or to even enjoy it, but just the grumble itself going on and on forever like a machine. It is not a question of God sending us to hell. In each of us there is something growing which will be hell unless it is nipped in the bud. As we stand before the throne, we not only see the justice of God, the goodness of God to judge evil, but we ourselves, our own sin, our own evil, that fire within us now is judged. And we see just how wicked, just how broken, just how grave and destructive our sin is. I can't believe I'm talking about hell on Memorial Day weekend. It's like, you know, the little boy who goes up to the preacher at the end of the sermon service at the door and hands him a dollar. And the preacher says, why are you giving me a dollar? The boy says, well, after your sermon, 
I heard my dad say to my mom that you are the poorest preacher he's ever heard. <laughs> After the 9.15 service, someone gave me a dollar. <laughs> but I'm almost done. I'm almost done. I'm almost done. So standing before the throne of God, we see God's goodness, justice. Standing before the throne of God, we see the gravity of our sin, but then, because of all of that, standing before the throne of God, we see amazing grace. We see God's grace on display in a way that we will have never seen it before that moment. See, verse 12 and verse 15 talks about another book. Another book was opened. Not just the set of books that have all our deeds in them, but this other book is opened. And because of this book, it says in verse 15, those who are, have their names written in this book will not be thrown into the lake of fire. They will not have that eternal fire that's already growing burn on for eternity within them. No, a change will happen. And you've got to say, well, how can I possibly make sure I'm in that book? We've well, got to realize in the rest of the book of Revelation, this book is described in many other places. In chapter 13, verse 8, it's described this way. The title of the book is the book of life of the lamb who was slain. In chapter 21, verse 27, it's referred to as the lamb's book of life. In other words, this book is literally describing those who have life from the lamb. And you may say, the lamb? Well, it goes right back to the beginning of Jesus' ministry. The very first thing Jesus did in John chapter one, Jesus is going to John the Baptist, his cousin, to get baptized. And what does John say when he sees Jesus coming? He says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. See, John recognizes that this is what Jesus has come to do, has come to be the Lamb, to be the sacrificial Lamb. And so all of a sudden, this Lamb's book of life that we find before the throne of judgment, what it means if we're written in the Lamb's book of life, is that somehow, because he's the Lamb and because we're his, the fire has fallen on him instead of on us. That instead of us being thrown into fire, he was thrown into fire. As that Lamb, that one, Jesus, who's seated on that throne at the day of judgment, as he was coming up to the top of Calvary, was nailed to a cross. In that moment, he was bearing all the sin, all the fiery embers of sin and evil that are in you and in me and in the whole world. He was bearing that sin, and when it was all done, he cried out to his father, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because he was in the pit of fire in that moment, our fire. And as he died in that fire, he took our place. He was the sacrificial lamb. But then as he rose three days later from the grave and then declared to his disciples, peace be with you, he's declaring your name is now written in my book. All you need to do is come to me in faith. And of course, our response may be, that, that doesn't make sense. How could such a gift, how could the gift of forgiveness, the gift of the, someone taking the fire for me, 
How could that possibly be something that I simply can receive with faith? And that's the definition of grace. You see, what we find before the throne of God is this incredible grace. God, unearned from us, unmerited, undeserved, says, if you believe in me, my son, if you take his sacrifice as your salvation, that fire will be extinguished on that day for you. And you will go on to life. Chapter 21 begins, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. This is the promise. This is grace. Every time we gather at the table and we celebrate the death and the resurrection of the lamb who was slain, the means by which we can be written in that lamb's book of life. We're invited to that table with those words, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Blessed, blessed, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. So on this Memorial Day weekend, as we consider those who've paid the ultimate sacrifice, as we think on final things and eternal things, What do we as Christians or those who are exploring Christianity, what do we do with final judgment? Do we run from it? Do we become ashamed of it and hide it and say, oh no, the world doesn't want to hear about this. I don't want to hear about this. Or do we embrace it and realize that in embracing the reality of final judgment, as we say in the creed in but a few moments, he will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, that that is a glorious statement that is a grace-filled statement because we find God's goodness, justice. We find sin's gravity. Don't take it lightly. But we see amazing grace. Behold him there, the risen lamb, my perfect spotless Sacrifice, the great unchangeable I am, the king of glory and of grace. One with himself, I cannot die. My soul is purchased by his blood. My life is hid with Christ on high. With Christ my savior and my God, with Christ my Savior and my God. For at the end it is Christ, my Christ, your Christ, my Lamb, your Lamb, who is seated on that throne. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.